Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. There are only a couple of verses printed in the bulletin that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I am going to read a larger passage, so if you have a Bible, it would be helpful to turn there. Um, so we're starting a new series on the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5. Um, but we're going to focus in the series on what we find in Exodus 20 <clears throat> primarily. So um, let me just give you a little bit of um, kind of technical theological geek stuff up front, uh, help you just a little bit to um, be a, a dork like me. Um, <clears throat> so there are a whole lot of commands, commandments, imperatives, um, statutes, laws that we find in the Bible, especially in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, um, uh, those, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are uh, known as the Torah or the law, right? The law is such a big part of what we find there that um, it's kind of named after that, the law of Moses. And theologians generally think of all the specific laws. I don't know how many commandments there are. I know that people have figured it out. There's several hundred uh, verses where there's just an imperative, do this, don't do this, um, laws, right? But all these laws, uh, theologians generally think of them under three categories or three types of law. Uh, There's the moral law, there's a ceremonial law, and then there's the civil law. So the moral law... Uh, has to do with, as you would guess, morality, um, personal holiness, personal righteousness, the way we interact with uh, human, other human beings in general, the way we interact toward God. Um, <clears throat> the ceremonial law is kind of the rituals and sacrifices, um, the, the, the things that have to do with the temple, um, that, that signify elements of our relationship with God. Uh, our reconciliation to God. And the, the civil law was um, given for the government of ancient Israel as a political state. God's people were national, uh, ethnic, uh, primarily in their makeup. And so as a political state, they had laws which governed them. Um, and so the, um, our, our confession, our catechism says of these three types or categories of law, that the, uh, the last two, the ceremonial law and the civil law, uh, we are no longer bound to keep. Uh, the ceremonial laws, what, they served a purpose of foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. They were written long before Christ, and they were a shadow of uh, who he would be and what he would do as the Redeemer. And so they've been fulfilled by him in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. So we don't kill bulls and goats on the altar anymore. <clears throat> Uh, first of all, because really it was never sufficient for us to do so, the, the book of Hebrews points out, um, but because Jesus Christ was killed on the cross once and for all to reconcile us to God forever. No longer any need to picture that uh, with these, these types of Jesus Christ, right? Um, so we don't uh, sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have this uh, Ark of the Covenant which is where God's presence dwelt behind a, a curtain that only one priest could go once a year after making various sacrifices. We don't have that Ark of the Covenant anymore because God dwells in our hearts by his spirit. Uh, we are the place where God uh, comes to earth. Right? So the, the presence of God is with us because of Christ. And um, 
We don't have things in the temple like the altar of incense anymore, um, which symbolized the prayers of the people being uh, beautiful and uh, fragrant, being lifted to God because uh, Christ himself dwells in heaven forever as our uh, intercessor, as the one through whom all of our prayers go directly to God himself. Uh, We don't even have a temple anymore because uh, those of us who are sitting right here and sitting in church uh, all around the world this morning, uh, we are the church, we are the temple of God, right? And so uh, the ceremonial laws uh, that came before Christ have been um, all fulfilled in Christ and in his work for us. And the civil law was abrogated, it was done away with, when God's dealings turned from, um, from national Israel uh, to international people, the, the church that's made up of uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We're now uh, a, a larger body than is contained in one uh, single nation state, right? So uh, we are citizens of heaven. We're foreigners and strangers in whatever nation we are in right now. Uh, we are citizens of heaven first, and Christ is our king first. And so laws about how to live as a theocratic state no longer apply to God's people. Um, but our catechism says the moral law abides. Theologians agree when you see the moral law in the scriptures uh, that have to do with personal holiness and righteousness before God, that abides and it always will. So uh, our catechism states in in the shorter catechism, uh, number 41, it says that the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually called the Ten Commandments uh, later in the book of Exodus. Um, so it's a biblical term that we use. We know that there's ten. <laughs> um, seems kind of clear when you read it. But uh, <clears throat> the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue uh, is another word um, for the Ten Commandments. It actually means ten words, uh, Decalogue. So <clears throat> uh, the moral law is summarized. It's summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And uh, pretty much all the other moral commandments in the scriptures um, can be traced back to or connected to one of the Ten Commandments. So uh, they hold a place of tremendous significance biblically. Uh, So many places in the Bible point back to the Ten Commandments. Um, And in the life of God's people throughout history. They were written uh, originally on two tablets of stone by God's finger. And there's nothing else in God's word that is like that, right? Uh, Christ himself is the word of God. He became a person. I mean, that's, that's incredible. That's more incredible than the Ten Commandments. But uh, in terms of anything that's written down for us, uh, God wrote it with his own finger, these, uh, these Ten Commandments. So um, they are unique in all of God's word. And God's people have always recognized that they deserve special attention. Um, so they've been in... in uh, included in many catechisms of different branches of the church, Catholic Church, Reformed churches. Um, I'll have a section on uh, the Ten Commandments, how to understand those. They're all over the place in Christian art uh, throughout history, and it's one of the uh, first major portions of Scripture that many people um, memorize. So um, even if you can't rattle them off in order, um, you probably would recognize all of them if you were given a multiple choice exam. Um, uh, even if you're not a Christian, you probably recognize them. So, um, so even though you might be familiar with the Ten Commandments already, probably you are, um, we're going to look at them over the next couple of months. 
because we all need a clearer and sharper understanding of how the law is supposed to be at work in our lives. Um, because our default mode with regard to God's law is either to reject it outright or to uh, twist it and abuse it for our own purposes. So um, no one ever just naturally gets it right when it comes to uh, dealing with God's law. Uh, No one ever just views God's law the way that he sets it forth for us in his word um, uh, just naturally. So uh, that's a big problem that needs to be addressed and actually pretty frequently needs to be addressed because unless we are actively on guard, we will all automatically kind of slip back into our default mode and we'll mess up God's law. We'll reject it or we'll abuse it. So um, I apologize. It might seem really basic to you. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments, but that's what we're going to do, and I promise I'll try to not make it boring. Um, So this morning... We'll look at the the preface to the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2, which are printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, It sets the context in which God gave the law to to Israel, to his people. And it shows us how, in general, we're to envision the law's use in our lives. So, again, I'm going to read more than what's printed in the bulletin. I'm going to read um, uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help as we consider your word. You've, uh, you've spoken many good words into uh, existence. By your word, you created the earth. And uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the very word of God, came into the world to give light to us, to enlighten our minds. And now as we turn to this word, which you wrote down with your very finger, we pray that you would help us to pay attention to you, that you would help us to Submit our hearts, our lives to your word, to your law. We pray that you'd help us to learn how to do that rightly as we come and sit under your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands or to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for the for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, like I said, I I think we have two major intrinsic kind of default modes when it comes to thinking about God's law, we either uh, reject it or we ab- abuse it. And I, I can't resist. I'm wearing the, the uh, Elroy Taylor uh, bow tie today, which is, uh, he's, <laughs> okay, this takes a little bit of explaining. <laughs> he's the stated clerk of our denomination. So we have a denomination, we have a group of churches where uh, we've got this one guy who's kind of the chief administrator. He's the stated clerk. And uh, at General Assembly last year, uh, the big joke was everybody goes and buys these bow ties with the blue and white stripes and it's the, the Roy Taylor bow tie, and we all wear it in, in honor of him, right? Well, he, um, whenever he preaches, this is kind of an inside joke, I guess, but uh, whenever he preaches, he absolutely always says, now the text naturally falls into two divisions, uh, whether or not there are actually two divisions in the text. Uh, we don't really have divisions in our text, but I think the text naturally falls into two divisions uh, because there are two, um, two major ways, two, two, again, intrinsic to our nature, Uh, ways that we uh, think about God's law wrongly when we're confronted with it. We reject it or we abuse it. By nature, um, we either jettison the whole thing or um, we use it how it was never meant to be used according to our own purpose. Uh, These are the the good old categories that really boil down to uh, licentiousness and legalism. Um, And the preface to the Ten Commandments addresses both of these views. So first, licentiousness. Big word basically uh, is based on a Latin word for freedom, right? We're free from the law. We, um, we, we reject it. We're not underneath it. It has no claim on us. So uh, licentiousness is the tendency that we have when we're confronted with God's moral law to uh, cringe and spit and hiss and shout repressive, right? Hands off. Don't want anything to do with that. Um, Basically, it's a rejection of God's law. It's too restrictive. Whether this is a a deliberate, conscious, kind of vocal, active thing that we're doing, or whether we just kind of ignore God's law and secretly hope that we don't get in trouble for ignoring God's law, right? Um, uh, Clearly, this is a popular default mode in our culture, especially in uh, our neck of the woods. People are coming in droves to the Pacific Northwest with the explicit stated purpose of getting away from the religion in other parts of the country where they grew up, especially the South, where, where the Bible, where church uh, still has kind of a foothold in the culture. Get away from that, you move to Portland. Um, they come here for the freedom that everyone enjoys from religion. Right? Uh, 
freedom to live their lives the way they see fit, to escape pressure to conform from uh, repressive Christian bigots. I've, I've sat on the max and heard people talking about this all the time. This is why people move here and they love it here. We're free from religion. Um, now that says a lot about the Christians in their lives, right? the Christians that they're fleeing, that they're escaping from. It says a lot about them. That's for another sermon. Sorry. Um, but it, it is an illustration of the default mode of many in our culture to have kind of an allergic reaction to God's law. Uh, the tendency there is to reject his authority, is to reject the standard of living that's set forth in the law, to reject the archaic restrictive moral values of the Bible in search of autonomy and freedom to live life my way. But the Bible has us pegged and it, it understands us better than we understand ourselves. And the Bible says that this desire to be out from under God's law, this desire for autonomy from God, does not produce freedom. It produces slavery. God's law sets forth human life as it was meant to be. Beautiful and flourishing in relationship with God, in submission to God. And when humanity kept God's law, uh, the whole world worked right, the way it was supposed to be, and we were truly free to live as people who were made in God's image, which is a glorious thing. But when we rejected God's law, everything broke, and we became free only to, to sin and die. We fell from grace in such a way that we became slaves to sin, slaves to our own sinful desires, slaves to false gods, false idols who promise us life and freedom, but who really only bring us misery and chains and death. And the rejection of God's law makes us utterly self-centered beings. It severs all true relationships. It destroys peace. And it warps the very nature of all reality. I'm not exaggerating for rhetorical effect. Um, our slavery to sin has bound us in a reality that is not the way that God created it to be. Right? And if we want true freedom, freedom as uh, God intended it, freedom as we were meant to have it and enjoy it, then we have to take it on his terms. And the good news is that God delights to set people free from their slavery. Right? Um, he reveals himself here in the preface to the Ten Commandments as uh, Yahweh. This is his personal name. It's his covenant name uh, by which he reveals himself only to those who are his people. Um, this is who God is. He is Yahweh. He's the Lord. That's what it, uh, it means when you see it in your, in your Bible printed with the, the small caps, Lord, is Yahweh. <clears throat> this is his name. He reveals himself as the deliverer, the liberator, right? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, where Israel had been uh, enslaved for over 400 years. 
In all of history, there have only been one or two things more amazing than the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, right? I mean, this is like top-tier amazing in the history of the universe. They didn't deserve it. In fact, they went on to complain and gripe about it. But God, of his own free grace, chose that people for himself and worked incredible miracles on a massive scale to set his people free from slavery. To set them free. He didn't just set his people free from one tyrant so that he could really tyrannize them himself. Right? He set his people free for relationship with himself, to live life the way that it was meant to be lived, and that's why he gave them this law. Right? Because emancipated slaves, when all they've ever known is slavery, have to learn how to live as free people when he has set them free. How to live in the world according to the purpose for which they were made, which is true freedom, biblical freedom. Right? If a fish were to say that he felt restricted and enslaved and oppressed by the water that he lived in and therefore wanted to escape it so that he could really be free we would say that fish was foolish, right? He was made for the water. The fish has to stay and live within the realm and according to the rules for which he was made. And if a child cries and feels repressed because she's not permitted to go and dance in the middle of the highway at rush hour, we would not feel much pity for her any good caring parent would enforce that rule, don't play in the highway, for her own good, for life, right? There's freedom in doing what you were meant to do, in living life the way it was meant to be lived. And that's what the law of God uh, gives us. It's the picture of true freedom in restored relationship with God. Uh, James even calls the law the law of liberty. It's the law of freedom. Interestingly enough, uh, most people who would reject God's law in the interest of freedom, at the same time, place high value on relationships. Have you ever noticed that? Moral standards may not go over well here, But community and acceptance and love, relationships, are extremely important. Watch this um, this thing on OPB called Breakfast Special. It kind of toured the the country looking at the the hot spots where you've got to go. If you're in St. Augustine, you go to this one place for Cuban breakfast. It's amazing. Or if you're in someplace in the snow, Wisconsin or something, (laughs) I don't know, you go to this one maple place that makes great pancakes and their own maple syrup. And the show ended up with a couple of, uh, of places in Portland, right, where you've got a lot, of, um, a lot of people who go on Sunday morning. Actually, one of these people said, you know, I think, I'm not sure if it's true, but it doesn't seem like church is a big deal here in Portland, but, boy, there's a lot of people who go to breakfast on Sunday mornings. It's a place where community and relationship and coming together and eating takes place, right? So we don't do the church thing. But community is extremely important to us. Um, But the Bible says that 
true freedom and living out uh, God's law, living life the way it was meant to be, relationships are intimately united. They go hand in hand. God says, I am Yahweh, your God. He uses his personal, intimate covenant name, and he says, I am your God. It's your singular. He's talking to all of his people, but he doesn't say your plural. He says your singular to emphasize the unity of his people. God is in a one-on-one relationship with all of us. And by his divine love, God makes himself our God, and he takes us for his people. He adopts us as his beloved children, He takes us as his bride. These are all images that we find in the scriptures of the the intimate union we find with God by his grace. Because he loves us at great personal cost to himself, the cost of the life of his own son, he has entered into relationship with us, with people who would kill him in order to be free of him. He's entered into relationship with people like us which is why we should trust that his law is meant for our good. It's not meant to enslave us, to tyrannize and oppress us. So we should stop being suspicious of his motives for giving us his law. We should stop rejecting the beautiful picture of of life in union with God that he's given us. Because when we reject the law, we're, we're not just rejecting some abstract rules. We're rejecting relationship with the most wonderful, most glorious being in the universe. James says in the second chapter of his letter, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So the the important part about the law is who gave it to us. That's why you could keep the whole thing, but you mess up in one point. You've broken it all because you've sinned against the one who gave it to you. You've sinned against this person. You've sinned against relationship with him. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God, the one who set you free. So there's a, there's a quote at the beginning of the bulletin from John Frame <clears throat> that says this, Ultimately, we're to obey the law not just because its principles are true, but because of the one who commanded them. The personality of God is indispensable to ethics. Worldviews that reduce the personal to the impersonal lose any basis for ethics. Ethics is based on a family relationship. In this world, we learn ethical standards in the family in a context of love and loyalty. Similarly, at the ultimate level, we learn right and wrong from a heavenly father and absolute personality. So the law of God is divinely personal, relational, and it brings us true freedom, which addresses the concern of those who would reject it altogether because they they think that it would uh, lead to the opposite of freedom or hinder their love and their relationships. So the second default mode with regard to the law is to abuse it. It's the, the legalism side of our uh, wrong response to God's law. And this is the one I think that we're probably more prone to inside the church. Uh, We slip very easily into thinking that we can use the law of God to justify ourselves in in his sight or um, just justify ourselves in our own sight, to feel okay about ourselves, right? We feel 
excessive guilt and despair when we break his commandments. Some guilt is right and appropriate. Guilt is, is, is right when we've broken God's law, but we feel excessively. It burdens us and weighs us down to the point of despair when we break his commandments. We feel terrified that people would discover that we've broken God's law in any way. We've got to hide that truth from people. We're desperate to keep them thinking well of us. We proudly compare our obedience to the, the obedience of those around us. We feel that things would be okay if we just try a little harder to actually pull off those spiritual New Year's resolutions. If I can only improve my devotional life, if I can just help a few more people who need it, if I can just stop looking at pornography, then I will feel right about my relationship with God. I'll feel okay. I can breathe a sigh of relief once I've cleaned this part up, once I've fixed myself. And this is, it's subtle, right? It's a, we abuse it, but we, we're blind to it because, because we're not rejecting the law. Right? We want to keep the law, but we miss the purpose of the law. The purpose of the Ten Commandments as a summary of God's law was never, was never to be a mechanism by which we fix ourselves. For God or for ourselves or in front of other people, it was never meant to be a mechanism to fix ourselves. You do not get into or stay in right relationship with God by keeping God's law. And that is, uh, that is a totally different religion. Right? Ours is a religion of grace, not of works. Not, ours is a religion of mercy, not merit. The law is given in this context, to people who already enjoy relationship with God as a free gift of his grace. That is extremely important. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you, past tense, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the work of redemption the work of deliverance, the work of bringing his people into right relationship with himself was done when the law was given. Israel had been set free to follow the Lord, to follow Yahweh and to worship him. And then God gave them a law to show them how to respond to his grace. How then to live as those who are reconciled to him. And believe it or not, As marvelous as what he did was in the Exodus, God has entirely blown it away with what he did at the cross. The deliverance and the redemption of Israel as a people, as a great nation, was small change compared to the deliverance and redemption accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have been brought into an everlasting relationship with God himself, a relationship of such joy and peace that it is beyond imagination, a relationship that can never be threatened or changed. And it's all as a free gift. You could never earn that. No matter how well you tried to keep the law, you could never earn it. And that's uh, not why the law was given. The Christian obeys God because God has shown favor to him, 
not so that God will show favor to him. And you absolutely have to know that order of things. You have to pay conscious attention to it at all times, or you will snap right back to your default mode of trying to keep the law so that God will love you. It's just ingrained in us to live that way. You don't just get to set your Christian life on autopilot and expect that since you believe the gospel and since you understand this dynamic that the gospel comes first and then the law, that you'll always use the law rightly from now on. You and I are prone to get this wrong every day. The very second that we turn our minds away from the love of God and the gospel. So you have to know the difference between the law and the gospel, right? Between command and promise, between what you're to do and what Jesus has already done. You have to know whether you're fixating on an imperative of the law, do this, don't do that, or an indicative of the gospel. Jesus has done this for you. And you have to know which comes first and why. And you've got to fix your eyes on the gospel. You've got to keep your mind and your heart there. <clears throat> Paul wrote a lot of letters to that effect. But in Titus, uh, he writes to the, the pastor in chapter 2. Um, he says, which we read in our uh, New Testament reading this morning. <clears throat> he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it's not live self-controlled, upright, godly lives so that God will be gracious to you. It's that God's grace has already appeared and that's what trains you to live according to his law, right? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself. The redemption was done in order that then we would live perfect, uh, not perfect, purified lives, uh, zealous for good works. And then later in chapter 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's not what came first. Salvation came first. According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, being born again, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that's the same dynamic that we see in the preface to the Ten Commandments. It takes the law away from us. It's not by works of righteousness done by us. It takes the law away from us as a tool to become right with God or to stay right with God. And it makes the law our chief tool for responding to the God who has taken the initiative in making us right with himself. God is the one who declares us righteous. God is the one who delivers us and cleanses us from sin and from guilt. God is the one who enables us to live by his law at all as a response of gratitude. It says this everywhere in scriptures. Deuteronomy 30, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That loving God with all your heart and soul is the great commandment that Jesus spoke of, right? It's that great 
law. It's, it's an even better summary, I think, of the, the law of God than the Ten Commandments is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? The way that you're going to do that is God changing your heart, circumcising your heart, taking the dead flesh away from your heart so that you will love him with your heart, so that you will keep his law. Ezekiel 36, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. And in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. So, John Frame, again, says... um, God's gracious deliverance precedes the demands of the law and it forms the basis for Israel's obedience. Grace precedes and motivates works. And we have to keep that in mind always. How many times do the psalmists recount Israel's deliverance from Egypt? How many times do they say, I will remember your salvation. That's something that we should do. How many times do the New Testament writers start their letters with a reflection on the person and work of Christ, on what he has accomplished in his work of redemption at the cross? How many times do they start there and then move on to instruction? You should live this way. Therefore, in light of this, live this way. And this is why we come to church to hear the gospel. This is why we come to this table every week. Jesus himself told us to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Remembrance of who he is and what he's done for us. It's basics, right? It's about his grace. And we should frequently, actively, consciously remember his grace. Remember his salvation. And that's where our motivation comes from to live for him, to respond to him, to keep his law. So maybe maybe make that your New Year's resolution to remember the gospel more frequently. That God is for you, that he's your good father, that Jesus Christ gave himself up to death for the love of you, that he's brought you with mighty arm out of the house of slavery, that he's liberated you from death itself. And that the Holy Spirit has made you a new creation. He's given you a new heart. And he's set you free to live as humans were meant to live in relationship with God. And that's why we keep this law. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we in some ways lament the fact that we forget your gospel so easily, that we return so quickly to a a wrong view of how to be in relationship with you, how to live in relationship with you, how to see your laws work in our life. And uh, 
And we pray that um, as you have done for so many years, so many decades and centuries and millennia in the lives of your people, that you have showered your grace upon us, that you have reminded us again and again of the fact that you love us and that you save us from uh, our sin, from slavery to false gods, that you save us even from ourselves and from death. And that these things, these, uh, these elements of the gospel, the good news of who you are and what you've done for us, are the things that um, renew us truly and, and uh, shape our hearts in a way that uh, causes us to desire to keep your law the way that you meant it to be kept. We, we do long for the day when your law will be kept perfectly by us, that uh, we can truly enjoy uh, unbroken communion with you and perfect fellowship with you and with one another. And until that day, we, we pray desperately that you would um, keep us humble before your grace so that we would be able to live in a way that um, pleases you as the one who has already reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.